Hey everyone, welcome back to season one of The On-Ramp, a podcast where we highlight successful people and the obstacles that they faced on the road to success. This is your host, Arteen Arabshahi, or Arteen in LA on Twitter and basically everywhere else. This season, we're talking with people who were laid off at some point in their careers and how that ultimately led to their success. It's been fascinating to hear how different people had such different reactions to their layoffs depending on what point of their lives they were in or their own unique circumstances. Make sure to hit the subscribe button now to hear more of these honest layoff stories from top entrepreneurs, creatives, executives, and more. When I was laid off when I was 22, it kind of didn't matter, right? I could literally get by by walking dogs and coaching girls soccer. I didn't I didn't need much by I didn't have a lot of responsibility. This was like a very different beast. And I remember just like my heart rate went up by like a million percent and I was just like sweating and I was nervous and I was frustrated. But at the same time it's like, you know, the guy who was laying me off was not his fault. It, it, it was what it was. The company needed to make changes. I understood why they needed to make changes and it was the right call. In today's episode, we talk with John Tavis. John is the co-founder and longtime CEO of The Books Company, an online flower delivery business that's done over $100 million in revenue. John and his co-founder started The Books in 2012 to radically disrupt the $100 billion global floral industry through a modern brand, responsibly sourced flowers, and a vertically integrated supply chain. They source their flowers directly from a curated network of farms and artisanal florists, disrupting the traditional supply chain to bring better experiences and economics for both consumers and producers alike. If you subscribe to their flowers, you save about 30%, you get free delivery, and they'll let you skip months at any time that you like. So it's a great deal. I talked to John about being laid off twice in his career, most recently from Shoe Dazzle, just before starting the books. The layoff is actually what inspired him to start taking the books more seriously and going from a side project into a full-fledged venture-backed business, which has now raised over $80 million of venture capital. This story particularly resonated with me because John was laid off from his role as VP of strategy at a fast-growing startup, which happens to be my current exact title and position at Route. I hope you appreciate John's energy, thoughtfulness, and guidance as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with hashtag the onramp. Hello, my friend. How are you? Doing well, buddy. How about yourself? Things are good. Yeah, it's a Friday afternoon, and so I'm getting ready for a weekend, and all things are well. I can't complain. Thanks for joining me today. Every day is Wednesday in, in pandemic, dude. You know that. Every <laughs> day is Wednesday. Man, that is wild. It's good to catch up though. And and yeah, you know, you kind of have the context here already, but you know, this this podcast, I started a little bit ago just to highlight the kind of obstacles that successful people have faced along the way. And the first season of, you know, the on ramp is about people who've been laid off at some point. And so I know you've had that experience a couple of times in your past. And so I'm excited to share that with the listeners. So much failing in my life, I, I could be a part of every season. Just like name the failure and I will give you examples. It'll be awesome. This is a it's new thing and I haven't done yet. I'm going to do that. I'm going to I'm gonna have you as a recurring guest on every season, depending on what obstacle. <laughs> Pick every failure and I, I guarantee I find a way to fit it into my life. It'll be great. I love it. 
I love it. And then I'll become like the the special guest who just talks about how terrible he is all the time. It'll be awesome. That's my goal. Uh, we're going to turn this into that. Um, <laughs> well, as we get going, I saw something in your, in your in your bio that I was just like, oh, I have to ask him about this. And so this is absolutely not a failure. Is it true that you were the first person who made both the football team and the Glee Club at Notre Dame? It's true. I don't know if I was the first person, but I also am, I'm pretty comfortable betting that I'm the first person. So it's it's true in the technical sense, meaning I was in the Glee Club. I joined the Glee Club as a freshman. I actually got cut from the soccer team at Notre Dame. And I had been in choir in, in high school and stuff and was like, I need something else to fill the time because soccer was like my passionate for, for like all of my junior high and high school years. And so I was like, oh, I'll go, I'll go join the Glee Club. So I tried out for G- Glee Club, got, got into Glee Club, which is great. And then my sophomore year, I went out and tried out for the football team as a kicker. So I took my soccer skills. My cousin actually kicked in D1. And I was like, oh, I could learn how to kick and sort of taught myself slash his dad, my Uncle Joe, taught me in the, over the summer. And I went in and I tried out in the fall. And I was I was actually really good at, at, at kicking a football. I went 24 for 25 during the tryout. The one I missed, my plant foot slipped and I hit the upright. And uh, the coach was like, wow, you should come back. And, you know, the off-season workouts, like we're not putting anybody on the team right now. We have two kickers, but come back in the off-season and then we'll have you join us for spring ball. And I was like, awesome. That's so cool. And so in the winter, I did all the off-season workouts. I was in the weight room and doing all the running and all the stuff. And the spring was like with the team. And I like made the roster at the end of my sophomore year. Like it was a digital roster. It wasn't like published anywhere. No one cared. But I was on the roster. My name was on the roster. Like my friends were freaking out. I was freaking out. And the guy's like, yeah, look, put on 10 pounds of weight over the summer and come back in the fall. And the walk-on coach left the program over the summer. And it's not like walk-on coaches is like the highest priority for any given coaching staff. And so it was like all lost in the mix. And I showed up and was like, so what do I do? They're like, who are you? I was like, I'm on the team. And they're like, we don't know who you are come back and try out again next winter. And I was like, nope, I, I this was too much. And I just like never went back into it because it all kind of fell apart, which I probably shouldn't have done. But yes, I was for about three months in the summer on the, the Notre Dame football roster. Wait, so did you put on the 10 pounds? <laughs> I did. I, I ate like a madman. I ate like steak every day. I lifted a ton of weights and I was like in great shape. But look, it's one of those things where like I ended up not on the team, which was super sad at the time. But then that next semester was when my co-founder and I decided to start a band together, which created the foundation of our friendship, which created eventually the Books Company, which is the defining professional, you know, highlight of my life. So it all lands where it lands, you know, for better or for worse. That is awesome. What a journey. And I and I had no idea. I mean, the way that that all tied together is awesome. I, I had known that the the books was a, a founding story of a friend from college, but I didn't realize the detail there. That is incredible. Okay, so I want to just jump into it. I mean, your story and a couple other folks have had a similar experience where they've actually been laid off more than once. So I, I, I would love to hear, tell us about your layoff experiences and then maybe pick the one that was more of a surprise to you. And we can talk a little bit about that experience and how it felt and how it happened. First one was when I was at Bain & Company. So I joined as part of the class of 2000. So just pre-internet bubble bursting, I graduated. And I was one of the later folks to start. I think I took a nice long summer to just hang out at home and take it easy. I want to say I joined in, in like late August, early September. And we were the biggest class ever in the Chicago office of Bain. And it was, I think we were 24 or 25 or something like that. 
it became readily apparent by the end of the first year at Bain that like things weren't great in the world, right? There was it was economically a terrible time for a lot of folks, and and consulting was was no different, right? There was a lot of deferred projects, a lot of you know pulling back on budgets for not Bain, but just like for everybody, and a lot of layoffs and that kind of stuff. So, you know, after the first year, there became just like a tighter managing process around performance. So this one is not the one I'll dive into, I think, in, in more deeply, because from that moment, it was kind of like everyone sort of knew, unless you were like in like the top one, two or three people in a given class, like you weren't going to make it very long. I actually had a really great relationship with and, and, and had a good process with my manager at the time. His name is Eric Garten, a great guy, brilliant guy. You know, we went through, you know, a, a six, seven month process. I think I made it longer than 80% of the class or 90% of the class. I was in like the last sort of chunk, but I was not, and I knew I was not one of the like the highest potential people in that group. Like my friend, George Jan Kronschnabel is CEO of a company now. She's was like light, like heads and shoulders better than me. Pete Holtman, who's a partner in the San Francisco office at Bain, he's still there 20 some years later. He was like heads and shoulders better than me. So like I knew I was going to make it there but I figured I would like give it my best, right? But it was a very managed process. So that one was, I, I would say, a healthy transition. And then I like went and started a dog walking business and had the greatest summer ever as like a 22 year old in Chicago, where I just like walked dogs and coached girls soccer and like hung out on like independent movie sets. It was amazing. The other one was Shoe Dazzle. So in between Bain and Shoe Dazzle, I went to business school. I, well, first I went to advertising for a couple of years out of my my first layoff, and then. Went to business school and then got a job at Disney and I was in corporate strategy for Disney for about six years. And I had kind of gotten the itch to go into the faster moving, you know, startup, venture back sort of world. And I landed a VP of strategy job at Shoe Dazzle. And Shoe Dazzle was Kim Kardashian's subscription shoe company, rocket ship, you know, growing like crazy. It just raised $40 million from Andreessen Horowitz, amongst others. And they were moving into a phase of new leadership and they needed someone who could do brand strategy, but also got numbers. And that's kind of what we did at Disney. So I landed there. The week that I joined, they changed the business model. The company essentially had grown and, and thrived through this model of, hey, you join this, this website, you're going to get a pair of shoes every month unless you skip. But if you don't choose a pair, we're going to charge you anyway. And then you can get whatever pair you want with it later. And so it was an automatic renewal. And that business model led to just crazy growth. I joined and literally four days after I joined, they changed that and they took that that subscription model away. I didn't get to work on that very much, but they took it away. Did it just become e-commerce? Pretty much. It pretty much became an e-commerce. We still had the curated showroom, which we called it, which was like based on your inputs, your previous shopping experience that are we customized the assortment, you know, and the celebrity design collaborations that we did and the the very fast fashion positioning that, that at the time, at least on a direct-to-consumer basis, was very novel. So we kept a lot of what we were about, but it was not purely pure e-commerce, but it was mostly e-commerce. That led to a challenging six months for the business. And after a period of time, there was some turnover in the leadership, like the most senior leadership. And then we had a meeting one day and it was like, hey, we're going to have some tough conversations, You know, sort of wait your turn. And I got called back into the office and a good friend of mine, I don't want to say who it was, like, you know, gave me the news that I was going to be laid off. And I still remember this. So I, I had left Disney where I made really good money. I uh, had a lot of a lot of security. Like my boss was great. 
we we made it through the 2008-2009 sort of uh, timeframe unscathed because we were you know a relatively small cost center in, in Disney. I just bought a house in LA, which was not like a cheap thing to do. And I had a nine-month-old kid and my wife worked in public education. And so when I was laid off when I was 22, it kind of didn't matter, right? I could literally get by by walking dogs and coaching girls soccer. I didn't, I didn't need much. But I didn't have a lot of responsibility. This was like a very different beast. And I remember just like my heart rate went up by like a million percent. And I was just like sweating and I was nervous and I was frustrated. But at the same time, it's like, you know, the guy who was laying me off is not his fault. It, it was what it was. The company needed to make changes. I understood why they needed to make changes and it was the right call. Like I, I actually put together a deck to show them why it was a good idea to keep me around. I was like, here's all the things I've done in my five months and here's all the things I'm going to do that is actually going to help you make it to this next period. And I was like, this is the strategy you should follow. Take it or leave it with me. And they were like, cool, thanks. And they're like, well, we don't need you. And they let me go. And then Brian Lee, who's, who's uh, just a great dude, you know, pulled me aside. We had a chat in his office too, and he was super supportive and ended up becoming a, a shareholder in the books company as well. But it was a hard day. It really was. It was surprising, but not surprising. Like I knew something was coming. I didn't know what. I didn't know if it was layoffs or some other kind of restructuring thing or a sale, or I didn't know what it was. And I didn't know if it would include me or not. And my hope was that it wouldn't, but it did. Talk to me about that day itself. Uh, obviously, we'll, we're going to get to you know how that led to the books because I think that was a, you know if I remember correctly that came kind of immediately afterwards. But just talk about like going home that night and and then the days that followed. As soon as I was given the news, I was texting my wife from one of the offices like privately, and we were both just freaking out. We were just like, we just bought this house, like we can't afford for me to not have a salary. It was a little bit of panic mode for the first couple of days. It honestly was like, it was like, we just took on this big expense. Cash flow is going to go down by a ton in, you know, as soon as, as soon as uh, our package runs out, which was not all that long again, because it was, it was a needed structural shift for the company at the time. Holy shit. Like we got to go make something happen. And the hardest thing was like what I did at the time, both at Disney and my job at Shoe Dazzle was like, not like a common job in the early stage sort of venture backed world, right? Like a VP of strategy, there's probably a handful of them in LA and they're always you know the, at later stage. You know companies. the irony, right? You know, you're, you know, I know, my I know. job is a VP and, of strategy. <laughs> and you're one of very few, right? It's a, it's a luxury to have a VP of strategy, right? It's uh, I'm sure they're going to lay me off some of these, <laughs> one of these days. <laughs> Don't get any ideas, people. But no, typically strategy sits with the founder slash CEO slash COO of an earlier stage company because you don't have the budgets to... And shoot, and, and all the time was like 110 people. So they were starting to get to that level where you might have a headcount for that, but it was still pretty early. So it's not like I could just like go knock down a whole bunch of startups and be like, hey, you know, you need a VP of strategy. The answer is no, 90, 95% of the time, they don't need someone to do that. And at Disney, I did strategy. I was in the corporate strategy group. What we did was like 10-year looks at how technology was going to change consumer behavior. And what do we do as a result? Like that, but I wanted to be in this world. So it was very scary because it was for the first time since I got married and, and obviously bought this house and had a child that like there was economic uncertainty. And we were not a household with like, money in the bank at the time. We had to borrow money to get the down payment for our home from friends and family. We were essentially negative as in terms of net savings as a result of that. And so we didn't have like a big cushion. And so it was definitely a panicked 
sort of three or four days where it was like, what am I going to do? I was frantically texting everyone I knew in my network, like any jobs, any got a beat on anything, just trying to kind of make something happen as fast as possible. But it did not yield a ton of results. And again, structurally, it was a tough role and community to try to be in. And I really didn't have a lot of bona fides. Like I was at Shoe Dazzle for five months. It was a tough time in the company's history. So it's not like someone's looking at me being like, wow, he killed it there. He nailed it on the strategy side, right? Because like it was a short period. And so I didn't have a lot of like to, to like lean on in that moment. And so it was mostly a sense of, of panic and fear, I think, sort of in that immediate aftermath. If you could now look back and give that moment version of you advice or guidance, what would it be? Well, knowing what I know now, there's all kinds of things I would say, certainly. I didn't count my 2002 layoff from Bain as a failure on my part because it felt it was structural, right? It was like my performance was very good. I was in whatever the top 25% or 33% or whatever percent I was in. I did pretty darn well. It wasn't like I failed personally. It was a macroeconomic shift that needed to, to cause, at least that's what I told myself, right? So I didn't feel a lot of failure. But in this, I felt a ton of failure because I was the VP of strategy and we had made you know choices that were not the best choices. And uh, granted, those were made before I joined and I joined in the midst of them, but it doesn't matter, right? Like I didn't do a great job and I felt like a failure for not just what, where the business was, but for also not convincing everyone that I should be part of the solution, right? For not building the right relationships, for not having the right pitch, for not, for not, for not, for not. So there was a lot of feelings of failure. And I think I'd probably say to myself now, like, one, like, yes, it is failure. But two, that's fine. Like, it's sort of, I think, a lot of what your podcast is about, which I loved about. That's why I pinged you on, on LinkedIn immediately. Like, that's a brilliant message that too many people like me at that time had never really heard. And it's talked about more and more now about like how failure, but like people talk about it in this very theoretical way of like, oh, you know, fail fast and, you know, pivoting and all these things that like don't really mean anything to a human being. They mean something to like a business person, <laughs> but business yeah. people are not human beings, right? They're robots that listen to people talk in very slow, boring, right. they're rational way. thinkers, they're yeah, rational, so that's, but that's, but that's not real. We are all human beings and we all feel stuff. And so I think what I would say to myself at the time is like, man, just don't feel it so much. Like recognize that it is what it is, accept it, learn from it, but don't like wallow in the in the self-pity and the doubt so much because just because this is the first time it happened, it's not going to be the last. And God knows and everyone knows that like I've had plenty of failures at, at the books ever since. But I think that'd probably be my advice to my old self. I love that. And I obviously appreciate the sentiment around that because I, yeah, that's that's why I'm doing these conversations. Is it, it really is like we we gloss over some of these moments, especially for people like you. I mean, I, I I joke about it, but you know, everyone knows that the guests that come on this podcast with me are 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 super super successful people, and I talk to them about maybe some of the low points along the way. And so I appreciate you willing to do that with me. Talk to me about about where it went. You know, obviously, you know, we we all know the books a little bit, and I'm a big fan. I'm a user, a customer. Thank you, sir. For sure, my mom, I should say, is, is should be the one really thanking you because she's been the <laughs> recipient of it most frequently. But how did it lead there? The silver lining was books was like five weeks from launch, so my co-founder and I started talking about books just after I left Disney for Shoe Dazzle. Like I went to Shoe Dazzle. I bet I went like February or something of, of 2012. And I bet by March, my co-founder and I were talking about it. Like just 
very theoretical. He was he was working at a flower farm in Ecuador and, and general manager of it. And I was like, we just started sort of rapping about it. And then like by April or May, I went to my boss and was like, hey, I was like, I love this job. And I, and I did. And I'm fully committed to this company. And I was. But I have this itch. And I think there's a cool idea here. Is it okay if I work on this nights and weekends? Like, is there any paperwork I need to sign? Like, just do it the right way? And he was like, yeah. And the, the, the whole leadership team was super supportive. So we like signed some documentation, making sure that I wasn't going to you know, do anything wrong. And they weren't going to own it if I built it, blah, blah, blah. And so I started working on with him in, in like May-ish. And layoffs happened, I want to say, in September. And we had over the summer gotten the basic groundwork for, for the Books company figured out. Like, how's it going to work? International logistics, the basic technology of e-commerce and, and supply chain management and that kind of stuff. And design and website and pretty pictures and that kind of stuff. So we got to a place where it was kind of ready. And so I remember, you know, myself and four members of my team that I had hired all got laid off. And that was honestly, that was that was the worst. Was like I felt super responsible for these people that were, you know, put faith in me and in the company to join my team. And we all got canned on the same day. And so I took them all to lunch and we all just like sat there. And they were kind of like looking around the table, like, what are we all going to do? And I was like, well, you can come you can come work for me. I'm going to start a company. It's going to launch in a month or two. And, and one of them actually did. He ended up becoming like our first marketing person from that team and, and was with us for two years. But so it, it, it so happened to be very lucky that I had parallel path that a bit. But I was really thinking of it during that parallel path time as like a hobby. Like I was going to build this small business. And if it generates like you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue and I can take home 15 grand in profit, I'll be thrilled, right? This will be a great outcome because it'll be an experiment and it'll be fun and interesting. And so the people who are working on it were very much around like things like, oh, it could go big, but we weren't like counting on it. All of a sudden when (laughs) I had no income, it became really important that it worked because there was was no other income. (laughs) Again, my wife worked in public education. So it was like, it wasn't, she wasn't making it rain. And so we needed it to kind of to kind of work. Hey, everyone. I'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsor, Silicon Valley Bank, for helping me make this podcast possible. I've been hoping to share these stories for a long time, and SVB helped make it a reality. For nearly 40 years, SVB has been a partner to entrepreneurs and investors like myself. They live at the forefront of the innovation economy and always go the extra mile for their clients. If you're a technology entrepreneur or investor, they should be your bank of choice. To get connected, reach out to me on Twitter at Artin in LA and I'll introduce you directly. Silicon Valley Bank, built for what's next. I'd also like to take a second and thank my brother, Arya Shahi, for helping me test out the audio for the podcasts and also my friend, Arya Safar, for creating the artwork for the on-ramp. If you're enjoying the episode, Don't forget to share your favorite part and write a review on iTunes. It really helps. You can also reach me on Twitter at RTNLA and hashtag the on-ramp. Now back to John. Have you guys disclosed maybe, you know, some any recent revenue? I don't actually care to ask you for something that you're not sharing, but I'm just thinking about, okay, you know, 15K of, of take home in a year versus what you guys must be doing now. What a difference. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't share like annual revenues, but for uh, for a Shark Tank article, we were on Shark Tank um, in, in our second year. 
uh, they asked us for like cumulative sales. And we didn't give the actual number because again, we're pretty private about our success and, and where we are. But at the time, I think it was seven years in, our cumulative sales were over $100 million. That's amazing. So you took home at least 15 grand. <laughs> <laughs> it worked better than the 15 grand. But that was really what it was. It was like the side business. But all of a sudden, it, it, did, it wasn't the side business. Now it was like, oh, find a job and you know get this thing off the ground. But I was working so much on getting off the ground, I wasn't doing a great job of networking and applying and, and trying to get a job. And then pretty soon, you know, maybe I want to say like three or four weeks after the layoffs happened, I said to my wife, I was like, look, I, I think I should take a run at making this thing work because the holidays are coming up. No one's going to hire me anyway. Like no one hires in November because the end of the year budgets are spent. And other side of the holidays, if it's going great, I could maybe just keep doing this. Like maybe it'll, maybe it'll work. And uh, she was like, all right, like, let's just put like some timelines on it so that we're not spending like three years where there's only one income and, and it's in public education, which by the way, public educators deserve to be paid more. I'm just going to put it out there. Agreed. Agreed. She was like, okay, cool. Like let's give it three months. And at the end of three months, let's reevaluate. And I was like, great. So I, I shifted from finding job mode to just like finding small consulting gig mode. And I was able to find like three relatively small, call it 10 hours a, a week each consulting gigs, either paying me on a monthly retainer or on an hourly basis or whatever. Uh, I worked with Spin Media. I worked with a, with a great like all organic baby focused bath and body, you know, kind of brand. And they were actually fun projects and, and really great people. And that kind of kept the lights on. It wasn't my previous salary. But it also wasn't full time. I was doing that it's kind of 30 hours a week. And then I was spending like 40, 50 hours a week on books. And so that was how we managed that next call at nine months. We, I didn't pay myself anything from books because there just wasn't enough to go around. Everything went right back into the company. But those consulting gigs, which started off with like 30 hours a week and like five months later was 20 hours a week. And three months after that was 10 hours a week. And then eventually kind of faded off because books became too all-encompassing. That was how I, I managed that transition until we got to a point where we could raise some money. And then I could pay myself 50% of what I made at Shoe Dazzle, which was 75% of what I made at Books. But we also re-engineered our life. Like we found ways to save money. Like we just said, okay, where are the priorities? What do we have to spend money on? What, what don't we? We're, like I was Mr. Mom for that time frame. Like I became the dog walker. I became the babysitter. I became the daycare. And we just you know, made those things work in parallel until we got to a place where we could raise some money and, and kind of get to some kind of salary that could get us back a little bit on track in terms of a quote unquote normal life. I love it. Talk a little bit about the Shark Tank experience. I'm sure a lot of people are curious. I know it's a non sequitur, but uh, I think a lot of people probably want to know what that was like and, and how it went. <laughs> yeah, Shark Tank's great. So you can find our episode. It's still out there. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. It's a thing like TV content, especially in reality, lasts forever. So don't go on the real world and definitely go on Shark Tank. <laughs> we filmed in the summer of 13. So we had actually just closed our seed round of $1.7 million. And Shark Tank had, 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 and I had gotten in touch and I had applied and gotten accepted and stuff. And so we filmed that summer. And filming is, uh, Shark Tank is, is, for me, it was really easy. I live like two miles from the Sony lot where they filmed. So like all these other people were like flying in and staying in hotels. And they were like forming this bond of Shark Tank contestants and I like drove over showed up like was in my trailer filmed and then went right back to work so it was it was a pretty simple process but what's cool about it and I, I think maybe something that a lot of people don't know is that when you walk in the tank it is the first time you meet anyone you meet producers and stuff but like any of the sharks 
So people aren't like hobnobbing and hanging around before. Like it is a true walk in, say hello, and then pitch. So uh, did my my long walk, my pause at the at the thing, and then did my pitch. The thing I think a lot of people also don't know is that you're in there for a long time. Like my pitch was an hour and 45 minutes. They condensed wow. that down to seven minutes of TV, but it was an hour and 45 minutes. And it was like deep business talk. And so they grind you, like they really grind you on stuff. And so Mr. Wonderful was pushing on like, well, if you're going to this valuation already, like you have to execute perfectly to make this work. And then you're going to be a public company. And like, I can already get this sector public. Like, why do I care? And I was like, cause it's totally different. And we're going to change the world. But, uh, but an hour and 45 minutes, and then they all rejected me, just completely, complete rejection. No, 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 all the way across. And I remember walking out, and it's on the episode, like I'm shaking my head, and I was like, that was brutal. Because it was, like you're under the lights, you're cooking, you're sweating. They're essentially telling you you're terrible on national television. Barbara thought the name was terrible, and Mr. Wonderful made fun of the fact that I couldn't get flowers there on time for my own for my own funeral. Oh my gosh. It's actually a great line. It was a great that line. That is a good line. That is he wonderful, was, huh? He was like, he was like, the only problem, John, is like the flowers aren't gonna get there in time to be there for your funeral because I, I think you died in here, my friend. <laughs> it was oh awesome. Gosh. And then uh, and then I walked out and it was like, okay, that's it. You'll you know, you'll find out if you err or not. And so, you know, you wait and then we were gonna air, and then they moved our date, and then we aired right before Mother's Day of the next year. And we sold out of everything in like two hours. It's like a half million dollars of revenue in like two hours. So it worked out. Um, which at the time was just unbelievably big for us. So, and then three years later, Robert Herjavec randomly called my cell phone and said, Hey man, I'm getting married to Kim Johnson from Dancing with the Stars. I remember your flowers. They're amazing. The quotes I'm getting are crazy. I'm a businessman. I like to get the best deal. I remember your business model. Can you do my wedding flowers? And I was like, of course we can. We did his wedding flowers. It turned out amazing. And we saved him like, I don't want to talk numbers because it's his business, but a huge percentage of, of what he was going to spend at a huge dollar amount. And he was like, this was awesome. Can I invest? And so we're the only company. I'm the only guy who was the kicker and in the Glee Club at Notre Dame. And Books is the only company to get rejected in the tank, but get a deal from a shark later. I love it. That is awesome. All right, we're going to move into the the kind of wrap up three questions that I like to ask. And these are meant to be, you know, quick 30, 45 second responses. And then, and then I'll let you go with the rest of your day. What motivates you? I am most motivated by seeing what happens. I see no downside in trying stuff because I'm super curious about what the other side's going to look like. It leads to things like starting companies. Um, it leads to me marrying my my beautiful and amazing wife because I tried things to get her to marry me. It, it works out, I think, more than not. And you learn a lot. I just get super jazzed about ideas and what might happen if if something is tried. So it's it's like you could call it curiosity. You could call it experimentation. I don't know. I just really love ideas. I love talking about ideas. And so I think that's probably what motivates me the most. Growing up, I would have probably said sort of winning and or money. I grew up very poor, so I I think I I think I thought that's what it was that motivated me. But as I've gotten older and kind of been able to explore, sort of really when when I get energy and like what brings me to life in the world, it's 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 ideas and like what's going to happen if. I sometimes ask people how their motivation has changed over time, and I love that you just went there without me even asking it because that is it is it is fascinating and and one of the incredible things about life is seeing how those things change over time and and obviously with kind of different versions of success and things like that. Well, you asked me to be brief, so I tried to jam it all. 
into one answer. <laughs> Speaking of success, how do you define success? Yeah, I was in this class at UCLA Anderson. And it was the best class ever. It was the best class I've ever taken. And the whole class was about sort of finding yourself as a human being. And I was at the time was not ready to do that at all. And I was super superficial and everything I did. I remember this woman who was in my class, we had to interview people and she was trying to interview me to learn who I was. And after like five weeks, we were still in the part where I was going to tell her about all the things I was going to accomplish in my life. And that list was like this ridiculous long list that included like be a US senator, break the two-party duopoly that that creates all the terribleness that's happening in the world right now in, in US politics, blah, blah, blah. Like a, a laundry list of like all these things that at the time I felt like was success. Like these are all the things I'm going to accomplish. And then in sort of the years after that, I recognized that like legacy is a, is a fallacy. Like there's no such thing as me having such a big impact on the world that the world will always remember John Tavis. Because, and here's my test, our team, we'll see how, we'll see how this goes. Who was the 17th president of the United States of America? No idea. You don't know who a president was. So why is anyone going to care about you or me or any one of us, right? As a historical figure, the answer is they're not like people remember like Isaac Newton and George Washington. And that's it. And that's because they happen to be in the history books. If those history books get changed. They'll be forgotten as well. So legacy and sort of success in that sense makes no sense. And it's sort of in the years post that where I started to find success for myself was in two ways. One is the the more micro impact that you have on individuals that you encounter in your life on a day-to-day basis. So for me, a lot, especially in COVID, it's my wife, it's my kids, it's my parents, it's my sisters, and it's my friends, and then just the world around me on a day-to-day basis. If I can have a micro positive influence on them, that's a great legacy. No one's ever going to talk about it. It's not going to be written about, but like that is that is one piece of it. And then the other piece of it, which I'm still really struggling with, but I think is, for me at least, success will be just getting comfortable with me. Instead of it always constantly having to be some evolution, some improvement, some next version of feeling comfortable, confident, content in who I am, what my life is like in any given day, then it doesn't really matter what your life is, right? Whether you have, you're the CEO, whether you're you know Elon Musk or working a manual job or anywhere in between, when you're content in that and who you are and what your situation is, then you are successful by definition. I'm not there at all. But I've been taught lessons by many people, especially the carpenter that helped me rebuild my home. His name's Tony, that it's really about sort of how you feel about now that matters and all the rest is is fleeting. All right. Last question for you. What is one thing that you are proud of? I am super proud of my relationship with my wife. We have a marriage and a partnership and a way of communicating and being there for one another that is everything and more than I ever thought I could hope for in a romantic or otherwise relationship. So I'm proud of her. I'm proud of me. I'm proud of us. I love it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for sharing your story. As we were wrapping up, I Googled it. The 17th president of the United States was Andrew Johnson. And so we will probably all be forgotten unless we are Googleable forever. <laughs> we got to get, get Wikipedia. I think that's our only shot, man. We got to get on Wikipedia. I'll put you on there if you put me on there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's how it works, but but I'll give it a shot, brother. <laughs> I love it, man. Thank you for being here. This was honestly just really, really awesome hearing your story and, and how it has led to everything that you've built with the books. I think people are going to love hearing that. And thanks again for doing it. Thanks for having me. And kudos to you for working to put out this side of things. I think it's super important. So great job. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
Hopefully now you're always going to remember the 17th president of the United States. I really loved John's advice that you don't have to feel it so much when a layoff happens. For a lot of people, it might be the first time that you've actually experienced a sense of failure, but it doesn't mean that that's permanent or that it's your fault in the first place. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and review us wherever that you can. Until next time. Thank you.